right, grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to your Bible, we have some down the center aisle of seats, and you can pick one up. Mark's going to be, I don't think, I think it's around five, 600. You can look in the table of contents and find that. Forgive me for not looking at it for you. We're still in chapter one, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28 today. And as you find it, we're going to read these words together. Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 28. Read these with me. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, and so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commends even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for, as uh, Pastor Nick said, a day with sun. Surely we needed the rain, but it's always good to see the sun. It reminds us of a new day that you've granted us today, new mercies and grace, and we need it. Lord, we're here because you've commanded us to gather, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We come because we are the church. Um, we meet in a building, and when we, and when we come together, we are your church. Uh, we come here today because we need you. We confess that, that we are desperate to hear a word from you, to sense your presence, to know that we have been uh, among your people, but also that we are with you. And so, Lord, as you've covenanted with us through the gospel of Jesus, we pray that we would sense that we have been in your presence today and that you change us by your words, by your gospel, and by your spirit. We pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so if you're joining us for the very first time, we just started recently, about four weeks ago, a series in the Gospel of Mark. This is our fifth week, and today we are uh, not really slowing down, but um, really uh, keeping track in chapter one. Um, if you've been with us, then you perhaps have noticed that we've already witnessed kind of a lot in Mark's gospel already. What do we witness? Firstly, we've witnessed the fulfilling of Old Testament prophecy through John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he comes in the likes of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and uh, excuse me, Elijah. And what the prophet Isaiah says about John the Baptist is that he would be a, a forerunner, that he would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so we've witnessed that. Secondly, we've witnessed the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus himself, the promised long awaited Messiah. He comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as a ruler. He comes to reign amongst his people. As Jesus steps on the scene, he brings the kingdom of God. Jesus comes as a king. And as he comes, he brings the rule and reign. He brings the kingdom of God with him. And that really is the framework that Mark is going to push us through the rest of his gospel. This idea of the king coming to reign and rule over his people, and he brings a kingdom with him. This idea of kingdom really is an important topic in all of Scripture. We see the kingdom in, um, in the beginning with Adam and Eve. God reigning and ruling over his people that is calling to himself in the place that God chooses. We see this idea of the kingdom, God ruling over the people he's calling to himself in the place that he chooses in the nation of Israel as he brings them into the promised land. Of course, we're seeing it here in Jesus as he's doing the same thing in the first century. When Jesus brings the kingdom, he's he's causing, in a, in a sense, heaven to come to earth. He's He's causing the kingdom of God to come near us. And he does that through his person and through his work. 
And I think that helps us understand everything that Mark's going to tell us, the stories about Jesus, Jesus and his sermons, the casting out of demons that we'll see that he will do today, all the ways that he heals, his ministry to the poor, the way he eats with sinners like you and I. These works and all the things that, that Jesus will do that Mark will show us are explaining to us who Jesus is, but he's explaining it in the framework, in the context of what it means that he's come as a king, but more importantly, he comes as a king with a kingdom. And so the significance of the kingdom of God drawing near is, as Nick said last week, it demands a response. Because the message of the kingdom of God is the very gospel that Jesus will come to preach. And the message of the gospel is that God has come, that he offers salvation to all that will trust in him and his work, that he comes near to us and judgment is close behind. That's the message of the kingdom of God. It's a message that demands that we, as he says in verse 15, repent, that we turn from all those ways that we are seeking to trust and um, believe in things that will save us or satisfy us that aren't God himself and instead turn in faith to believe the gospel that Jesus is preaching. So that's what Jesus has come to do. And today what we're going to see is the kingdom of God drawing near doesn't just demand that we respond to it. Actually, that's a challenge. It's a confrontation that Jesus coming as king, bringing the kingdom of God, uh, ushers in that we have to, 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 to deal with. He will confront uh, our view of life as we live it. The kingdom of God confronts and challenges in us in regards to the things that we assume about the world. And it also challenges the things that we even think about God. I think the reality is for all of us, there are moments in life that change us. Someone once said that we are all a phone call away from something just changing everything about how we think and live. Think of the things that have happened in our nation this week, the shooting on Thursday or, or Friday in Santa Fe, uh, the, the one parent that they interviewed over and over again, and the call that she got from her daughter saying there's a shooting in our school, and the mom like stopped what she was doing, turned around, and she's racing to the school to try and rescue her daughter. Fortunately, that daughter survived. But she was one phone call away from that event changing her life, and very likely it did change her life. I think of the adoptive families that we have in our, in our church. And it's not that you aren't thinking about and ready to receive a child, because you go through a lot as you are, when you're a foster parent or when you're adopting a kid, but there comes a day that you're going to get that phone call. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, we've been prepared for this day for a long time, and it's here, and we're, we're ready, but we're not ready. And in that moment, your life has changed, but I mean, you're, I mean, everything about life has changed in that moment. But here's the thing. There's also moments that don't just change your life, but also change your worldview. Uh, here's a story about me. So when I was a kid, I had an oral fixation, and don't, don't judge me. All of y'all had oral fixations when you were kids, and you might have one still today, putting your fingers in your mouth, sucking your thumb, those kind of things. Mine was, like most kids do, you, you, you find, you know, a little kid, whatever you pick up, what are you going to do? Put it in your mouth. All right, so one day I happened to come across a 9-volt battery, right? You know what happens? It, I mean, don't we just like, it's just pulling you. It's like, I got to do it. I got to put it in my mouth. And you stick your tongue on those two, those two the positive and negative prongs sticking out. And ah, if you're a kid, that can be kind of shocking. That, that'll be a moment that changes your life. It's, it, I think of the kid. Uh, I was told about a kid um, who was in his dad's office. He's sitting on the floor and he finds a paper clip. And he starts playing with that paper clip and he looks over and the wall has this little thing on it and it has like vertical lines. And he decides to stick that paper clip inside the outlet. And you, Jaden, come on, brother, get it. I was talking about Jaden, I didn't even know it. I mean, think about that. So that moment changed that little boy's life. But more importantly, he has a completely different worldview about how electricity works, doesn't he? On a more positive note, if you are a person uh, of ethnicity here, it's the first time that someone calls you by a derogatory name. And I'm being serious here. For me, it was third grade. 
Uh, my friend, who was not of the same ethnicity as I, was told by his parents that he could not play with me because I was an N-word, and his parents told him he could not play with N-word people. And here's the interesting thing about that. I come from a black family in the South, and so the N-word was not foreign to me. My, my family used it liberally. We used it about our, I didn't use it, my parents and my extended family used it liberally in jest as we were talking about my family. But it's, it feels different when someone else says it and they're directing it towards you. That was a life-changing moment for me. It was a worldview-changing moment for me because I realized in that moment that not everybody accepted me for who God had made me. And if you're a person of ethnicity, you've experienced that same thing in some context in your life. Perhaps in some way, all of us have had some of these moments. And here's the thing. When Jesus steps on the scene, he's going to confront some of the most foundational aspects of our dominant worldview. Some of the things that I've talked about, some of the things that are way more serious than I, than I, than I have time to bring up. And coincidentally, this is why they killed Jesus. Why? Because he dared to confront people about and challenge people about those things that they assumed were true about their reality. Things that they assumed were true about the world and how it worked. Things that they assumed were true even about God. And, and, and I think today in our text, Jesus is going to confront us about some things that we assume are true about our world and about God himself. Um, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, I'm philosoph uh, philosophizing for a couple seconds here. What I want to do, there's, there's a couple, there's, there's two aspects to Jesus' ministry that we'll see repeated over and over again in Mark. And we see it for the first time here in verse 21 through 28. And then we're going to see it all over the place in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to take a couple of seconds to explain it so that it makes more sense when we come upon it in the following weeks. So two aspects of Jesus' ministry where we'll see over and over in Mark's Gospel that he confronts people. And the first of those is the supernatural. Supernatural. Here's, here's some, uh, not statistics, but just some interesting facts. 500 years ago, atheism was an unthinkable concept in our culture, in the, in the, at least the American culture, world culture, really. To be an atheist was, it just wasn't common. It, most people were not. The transcendent and the supernatural, on the other hand, were just assumed, and it was assumed by everybody. And what I mean by transcendent is simply this world, the, the belief that this world is not all there is, that there's more to our reality than just what we can see. People readily believed in the supernatural. And that doesn't mean that everybody believed the same thing about God. Far from it. History tells us that people were willing to go to war and kill each other because they thought different things about God. But what I'm simply saying is 500 years ago in the pre-modern world, there was an understanding that the transcendent and supernatural were just assumed to be true. It was a natural part of what everybody thought existed in the world. Of course, today, not so much, right? We, we live in a world today that we have basically casted this to the side, and we think in many ways quite the opposite. Today, we have outgrown this idea of the supernatural. The supernatural is relegated to the make-believe world. Demons and fairies and spirits and, and gods, little gods, that, that's once upon a time land. And we think that today because technology has told us that we can rationalize anything away through science. That, I mean, we, can, we, we have natural causes for everything, and there is nothing that we can't explain. And if we can't explain it, if our minds can't grasp it, then we shouldn't even be thinking about it or even believing it. Of course, when I say that, of course, the implications of that aren't necessarily good, because if there's no transcendent, if there's no supernatural, it, it means we're forced to find meaning and significance without it. It means that we're looking for purpose and meaning. You and I, we're looking for what, what, why we even exist on the planet, but we're only able to use the things that we can actually see and wrap our minds around to explain all those things that exist. We're only able to use that which is imminent. And here's the bigger problem with that. The worldview of the Bible is overtly supernatural. So that's the first thing. The Bible not only assumes that there's a supernatural and transcendent reality, but it assumes that there is an authority structure in our world. And this is the first thing that we're going to see as we come to our text. 
Um, authority. Say authority. authority. All right, we're a military culture, so authority is not foreign to us. But it would be right to say that our culture does not like the word authority. I think most of us recognize there is some utility in having authority about the way that we do life and over us. But generally, um, we don't want to be subjected or submissive to most things in life. And I would say that over and against the, the obvious things that, that would suggest that authority is good. It makes sense, right? Even here today, this morning, I've seen it. It makes sense that kids would have parents that would tell them what to do and what not to do, right? Otherwise, the world would be chaos. You never have an unmade, you, you, you never, never have a made bed in the world, right? There'd be peanut butter and jelly all over the place. It'd be nasty. It makes sense that students teach teachers. It makes sense that uh, people training for things, think athletes and uh, teams of people would have coaches. It just makes sense. We know in our guts that some of these things are just right in order to, to have the decency that we need to go about life. But there's something in us that does not want to submit ourselves to uh, authority. It's like going to the doctor. Isn't that right, Dr. Mark Words? It's like going to the doctor and a doctor tells you, all right, this is what's going on in your body and you need to take this medicine or perhaps get this surgery to right the things that are wrong. And you tell the doctor, it's like, I'm not doing that. And you might not say it that, that strongly, but on the down low, you're going to get a second opinion, right? It's like, I'm going to check somebody else out because I don't believe what that doctor said. Even though the doctor comes with years of authority, even though the doctor is telling you what needs to happen for your own good, right? What will we do? We resist it. Why, why do we do that? Because it's in us to be averse to submitting ourselves to authority. This idea of authority, even though we know deep down that it's useful, we just don't like it. We resist it. But here's the thing, and this is what the Bible presents to us. We'll see it today. God uses authority for our good. God intends for all authority to be loving, to serve, to create, to create human flourishing. And we see this in Jesus. If I were to have you to just shout out what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus, what word would you say? Shout it out. I didn't hear you. Woo! All right. All right. Love, grace, peace. Would you think authority? That's not the first word we think about when we think of Jesus. And yet that's the first word that we will see in Mark's gospel. And that's the really that's the framework that that gospel that Mark will use as he's talking about Jesus, the king who comes to rule and reign over his people, who brings a kingdom so that a taste of heaven comes to earth. He presents Jesus as a person who is loving and who's serving and who has powerful authority over Everything, And that brings us to our text. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. All right. A little bit of context is necessary for us to catch up to where we were last year. So in the previous verse, Nick unpacked last week that Jesus called four men to follow him as his disciples. And so when it says, and they went into Capernaum, it's talking about Jesus and those four men, Andrew, Peter, James and John. Um, they went into Capernaum. Capernaum was a, a coastal city. It was on the, the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fisherman's town. It was the perfect place for Jesus and his, his small posse at that point to start fishing for men. So that's what they did. Notice the word immediately. We saw it two times in, in, the, in the previous text last week. We'll see it two more times here. When you see the word immediately, what we're getting the context of is that Mark is focusing not so much on the details. He's, he's just giving us this action-packed perspective of Jesus and his life. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus comes to do. The other thing I think that's, uh, that at least, at least sticks out to me is in the last phrase. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This almost sounds like that the gospel writer Mark is, is jabbing at the scribes. He's actually not doing that. Uh, the, the scribes were some of those, the most respected people in all of the Jewish culture. 
What he's doing is not jabbing at the scribes. He's boosting up the teaching of Jesus. And you see it in the, the first two verses. What he's saying here is, I mean, this dude, he's got some awesome teaching. And here's the, 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 the special nature of Jesus' teaching. He, he teaches with authority. In fact, he teaches, his teaching is so good that it far surpasses the best of our teachers. So that's what he's bringing out there. Um, here's what's uh, the, the last thing I'll say about these, these two verses. This is a significant um, thing that Mark is doing. It, it, notice here, he hasn't even told us what Jesus was teaching. That's an insignificant point for, for Mark. But what is significant is it's, it's, it's the fact that Jesus is teaching um, with authority. We can assume, however, that the message that Jesus is bringing about is what he's already talked about. Verse 15, what did he say? Repent, believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is, is at hand. So that's really the content of his message. But what Mark is focused on is that this passage is not necessarily talking about the content of his teaching. It's talking about the teacher. And that's what he wants us to notice. Actually, that's what Peter wants us to notice. Because Mark is retelling the story of Peter and Peter's interaction with Jesus. And so it wouldn't have been John Mark in the synagogue with these four disciples and Jesus. It would have been the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter, through John Mark, wants us to know how astonished the people in the synagogue were to see Jesus. But more than seeing Jesus, to experience his teaching. They were astonished with his Authority Again, now, all y'all are military, so, I mean, you, you've seen people in authority. It's not strange for you to just walk up to somebody and not even hear them say anything or see them do anything, but note that that person is a person of authority. I mean, as, as a kid, I remember when I was in second or third grade, um, they took all of my school to see Jimmy Carter, uh, to, to hear Jimmy Carter as, as president speak to, speak to us. I don't know what he was talking about, but I do remember it was a special nature uh, of just being in the presence of a president. At, at West Point, I think I, I mean, I marched before at least two presidents, saw speak at least a couple vice presidents, and I don't remember a thing that they said, but I do remember just the, the essence, the presence of being in a person of authority. And I think that's really what we're supposed to get the feeling here. It's not necessarily what Jesus was saying, although what he was saying was probably, I mean, good to their soul and, and encouraged them to, to follow him as a disciple. But what we're supposed to get here is the fact that Jesus and his essence and his presence drew people to him such that they were uh, immediately amazed at this person of authority. And we're supposed to compare that over and above what the scribes would have used to teach. The scribes would have oftentimes referred to the, speak, the, the writings of Moses or what the prophets would have said. The prophet said this, Moses said that. A lot of times you'll see that Nick and I, when we're preaching and we're arguing a, a, a specific perspective from a text, what do we do? We'll quote a commentator. Okay, we're, we're proving our argument, or we'll talk about John Piper, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler. They said this. All right, we're bringing we're bringing credibility to our argument. Guess what? Jesus didn't need any of that. Jesus didn't quote a prophet. He he didn't feel the need to do that. Any of that? Why? Because Jesus was his own authority. He relied on himself. He didn't need to rely on anybody because God had already affirmed him and his baptism as. His son, the one whom I love and whom I am pleased. Jesus steps on the scene and his essence, his presence exudes authority. And so Jesus shows up. The most striking thing that initially grabs everybody is his authority. But then the worship service unfolds. And look at what happens next. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. All right, we see the word immediately. I'm going to stop saying that, but I mean, it's pointing attention to it. Uh, Mark is about the action. This is what Jesus is doing. This is who he is. And but what I want us to do right now is just stop and actually read that verse again. Like read it to yourself. And, and what I want you to think is like, oh, my gosh, what would I do if that happened? Like right here. So these people are gathered for worship, not unlike what we're gathered for worship. 
They probably had somebody like John Cresswell singing some songs for the worship team. They're like, you're my rescuer. You're my rescuer. We are free from sin for. I mean, they had their hands raised. They're rocking back and forth. And then Jesus comes up and he opens up the scroll and he talks about some great verse from, you know, the prophets or the, the wisdom writings. And then all of a sudden there's a commotion. It sounds like people are shuffling and there's a man that presents himself. And this man somehow is controlled by enslaved to and inflicted with an unclean spirit. This dude has a demon. Can you picture that happening here? Somebody said, does that happen today? And so the reason why I opened the way I did, talking about our worldview and what we believe about the supernatural and the transcendent is for this reason right here. This is one of those clear passages. I mean, it's not unclear what's happening in this text, right? A man is possessed by a demon and it manifests itself in the middle of a church service where they're worshiping, not unlike what we're worshiping right now. And I think that a passage like this is supposed to confront us about what we think about life and reality and what the Bible says about life and reality. And I think we're supposed to believe what the Bible says. And the, the, the thing is, a lot of times, us as Christians, we'll just shrug this off and say, well, you know, I know the Bible is, I mean, the Bible's not telling a lie. This stuff can happen. Of course, this did happen in the first century. I'm sure that's what happened in the first century in their worship service. And yet, maybe demons are, are real. And then what do we do? We go on and live our life. What we fail to do is perhaps bring this into our current context and think about how this kind of thing might surround our own lives. Have you ever given any thought that you, even unknowingly, might have been in contact with the supernatural, with an unclean spirit, with a demon? Perhaps it was somebody at lunch that was uncoherent, unclear. They just couldn't get the words out as they were trying to articulate a point. Perhaps it was somebody that was depressed, that was sad, that you knew there was something dark and unexplainable about them, and you just couldn't put your finger on it. Perhaps it's something that you've noticed in somebody, you know, someone in your own family, a friend, that they just seemed down and under, and you wouldn't necessarily firstly go to this idea of them being uh, plagued by, inflict, afflicted by a demonic spirit, but perhaps that makes sense now that you're thinking about it. But what has happened here is in the middle of this worship service, the reality is a demon has manifested himself. And you should not dismiss the fact that Jesus is present. And so a demon manifests himself through a man, and Jesus happens to be there in the service with them. And so why would we not think that that could happen today? Why would we not think that even today, right here as we gather, there might not be spiritual activity surrounding us because of all the things that we've been into this week, all the things that we've looked at and researched with our phone, all the people that we've been in contact with, all the things that we've done, all the sinful ideas and thoughts and words that have come out of our mouths towards people, things that we've thought in our heads that we may not have articulated to anybody. Why don't we think that we could come in here and not have that same kind of spiritual demonic influence with us even today, right now? I know I'm scaring you, aren't I? But we should think about that. And here's the thing. To the degree that we don't make the connection with what we read in this verse is the degree that our worldview is not aligned with God's. And the truth is, we don't think like this, do we? We don't think this clearly about a verse like that being that close to us and the way that we live out our Christianity. And I think for some of us, we're just scared to think like that. So you've heard of people who, who see a demon under every rock, their, their car gives out a gas, and they immediately think, <laughs> A demon did that, right? So I was traveling. David, uh, David participated in the International Science and Engineering Fair in Pittsburgh, and he, David did well, by the way. So congratulations to David. Um, 
You can ask him how well he did, but he did very well. We're so proud of him. Um, on my way back, like I was like running out of gas, like, like out, out. My light had come on and somehow I got on 70 and I meant to get gas before I got on 70. And this is like rural Pennsylvania. And it, I had to travel like 25 miles to get to a gas station. And I did not think I was going to make it. And so I was rebuking the devil like oh, you don't know what. Like, devil, you are lying. I'm just kidding. I mean, sometimes we'll do that, right? We'll blame the devil on anything. And, it, you know, the devil wouldn't have been responsible for me running out of gas. I was just too stupid to get. I was waiting. Gas prices went up. I mean, come on now. Our, our, our politics is messing up my wallet. Gas prices went up, and I was not going to pay $3.15 in Pennsylvania for gas. And I was going to run out of gas and blame it on the devil. And so sometimes we'll do that. But here's the thing. Most of us, we aren't going to do that. But we will dismiss the things that are happening around us uh, you know, and, and, and altogether just push the supernatural to the side and just say, it's not happening. Our world is closed. There's a lid on it. There is no supernatural. And what I'm saying to us here is that would be a devastating thing to relegate this passage to. We're not supposed to just push this to, us, to the side and say, you know what? That happened 2,000 years ago in the first century. And yeah, I don't believe the Bible's not true, but this stuff, you know, I read in a book one day, that this author said that this stuff doesn't happen anymore, and that is the theology that I'm going with. Sometimes it doesn't work, especially when you are presented with the demonic, like right up front and central, right? Which is what happens next. Look at verse 23. And so this demon cries out, verse 24, what have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so here's the, what you to notice here. This demon is not confused. Perhaps everybody else is confused, but this demon is not confused. He knows who he is. Interestingly, he knows who Jesus is, and he calls him out. Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One. A couple things here. This demon, God is using this demon. How is he using him? He's using him as one more entity to confirm who Jesus is. We saw it firstly with, with John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then we see Jesus baptized and we see the Trinity coming and acknowledging who Jesus is. God the Father speaks. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit falls on Jesus, signifying that he is divine and God has chosen him as the savior of the world. And of course, we're seeing it through the mouth of these demons. And here's how the demon does it. He talks out loud, he speaks in a coherent language, and he speaks through the man he is afflicting. Stop and think about that. All right, so, I mean, show of hands. Any of y'all ever seen that before? I'm freaking some of y'all out. Does nobody raise their hand? All right, so you've never seen a demonic episode ever? Okay, a couple of y'all. So it's okay if you don't raise your hand. In fact, I would rather you not raise your hand and say you've never seen it than you have. And, and I'm a pastor. I've seen it. But even if I wasn't a pastor, I, I've seen more of this than, than I want to see. And, and probably perhaps because the first half of my Christian life was in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And Pentecostals and Charismatics just tend to talk about this, the supernatural more. It's not that it's wrong what they talk about. They just they talk about it more. And so because they talk about it, they minister to it more. And you see these kinds of things manifesting. And and and, and so here's the thing, church folk. I'm telling you, I'm your pastor and I'm not weird. I don't like weird stuff. This is real. You want to know what a demonic manifestation is like? Is like this. In fact, I would say what we're reading is a little bit less violent than what a demonic manifestation actually is. And we're supposed to insert ourselves in the story and sort of read like this. I mean, this is it's, it's violent. It's 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 dark. It's extremely upsetting. And the moment you hear darkness speak through another person, especially if you know and love that person, it's going to cause you to take all of your theologizing, everything that you've believed about the spiritual gifts, and you're going to cast them to the side because you are confronted with that darkness in whatever way it's manifesting itself, and you got to deal with it. 
and your theology might not help you out at that point. And again, I'm not trying to scare some of you, but, but here's the amazing thing. And this is what we're supposed to see in this text. We aren't supposed to be scared because the demon's scared. You see that? The demon is scared and he's acknowledging who Jesus is because he knows that Jesus has authority and he can cast him out. In fact, that's what he does. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And so I got a footnote in my Bible and it says, do not domesticate the Bible. All right. I'm lying. My Bible doesn't say that, but but it actually should, because, I mean, we will read these verses. We'll, We'll read about a demonic spirit convulsing and crying out loud through a man. And it just I mean, we're we will dismiss this and then move on to the next verse, one that we can quote and underline and put on our refrigerator verse. Right. But what do you do with with this verse? Because what we're supposed what the what the text is inviting us to do is to live this, to insert ourselves in the story and imagine it happening. And what is happening here is this violent episode of a, a demon manifesting and crying out. And thank God, Jesus has authority, because what does Jesus do? He tells the demonic spirit to stop talking and to come out. And with that word, it comes out. Amen. But doesn't that make you a little wondrous about the spiritual activity that perhaps is around you all the time? If this can happen here, unbeknownst to all those people there, it should warn us. There's always spiritual activity happening around us. And so God help us that we would be more in tune, that we would be more spiritually minded about the things that are going on, the spiritual warfare that's happening about us. And here again, here's what's neat about this. The people of God in Jesus day expected a battle. They wanted the Messiah to come and he was going to raise up a physical army and go into physical battle against Rome. But what what's happening here is this isn't a physical battle. This isn't even the battle they wanted. This is not even Rome. They're not fighting against flesh and blood. Who are they fighting against? They're fighting against principalities and things that they cannot see. And here Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out with a mere word. And that tells us the authority of Jesus. Verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they do obey him. So if you're a person that underlines your Bible, if you are a person that makes note of key verses in a particular text, this is the key verse. All right. This everything else was kind of sensational. This is what Mark is leaving us with in terms of here's what's important. here. This is the climax of the passage. And here's the climax. Every single person in the synagogue was astounded. And, And just to be clear, at this point in Jesus ministry, they aren't yet sure who he is. But whoever this Jesus is, he's amazing. Because he has authority that surpasses any authority that we have ever seen. And this is going to I mean, this is going to be the refrain that will sound again and again in Mark's gospel as people experience the authority of Jesus. And so when you think about it, the healings that Jesus will do, the preaching that he does, the miracles that he will that he will do in front of people, they all can be categorized under the authority of God. And that's what's coming to fruition here. We're seeing the authority. We're seeing the kingdom of God coming to play. And that thing that that he he wants us to see is that authority. Who is this that has such authority? Who is this man eventually that will calm the wind and the waves? That's what Mark wants to pick up really in the first eight chapters of his gospel. This is Jesus. He's a man with authority. And we finish in verse eight. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the region of Galilee. And that's a nice, soft place to end. And this, I mean, if you're a praying person, which all of you should be, this is the kind of prayer we should be praying over our city and over our our church, right? That, That the fame of Jesus 
And his glory would not just be relegated to us when we come together in this room, but it would, it would leak out of us and all the avenues and the venues that we ourselves collected and individually go to, and that it would bring fame to all the cities and towns surrounding in DC Metro that we live in and that God would get the glory through us. Amen. All right, so let me ask you, I mean, what do we do with this passage? I kind of sort of told you already, but I mean, this is, uh, this is an unusual text, right? And sometimes we don't know to do with, what to do with sensational texts like this where supernatural things are happening that none of us can explain. So let me summarize, and I'm going to give you a couple points uh, in conclusion. So first, just a summary. This, is, this, this gathering at the synagogue is the initiation of Jesus' public ministry, and it's the very first thing that people notice about Jesus is his miracle-working power, and particularly his authority. So this demon come to manifest himself. It shrieks. It was cast out of a man. And, and Mark is using that as clear evidence that the kingdom of God has, has burst through um, from heaven to earth to announce that the king is here and that he has all authority, even authority over the crazy stuff that's happening in our world. And I think uh, Luke echoes this Quite nicely, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why did Jesus come? He come to set people free. What happened in this text principally? By his authority, just being who Jesus was, he set this man free from an unclean spirit. And the kingdom of God pressed in. The kingdom of God drew near. He cast out that demon. And then we'll see healing. We'll see restoration. We'll see salvation. All these things that was promised of the Messiah are going to happen. Why? Because Jesus comes. And the most important thing that we're supposed to notice about Jesus is not the supernatural that he comes and over, overthrows. It's his authority. And Mark is going to give us that glimpse throughout his, his gospel. And, 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 and really, we're supposed to see that what culminates on the cross begins here in the synagogue. Jesus, alter, Jesus has all authority, but on the cross, what he's doing is he's submitting to the authority of the Father, dying in our place for our sin. That great act that Jesus does, being a man in authority, under authority, culminates on the cross, but it's initiated right here in this synagogue. So it's an amazing story that's unfolding and beginning right here in this synagogue. Let me give you one thing to be mindful of and three things to pray about. Firstly, let's be mindful of this. If you're not a Christian here, given whatever your worldview is, wherever you come from, whatever you believe about the transcendent or the, the supernatural, would you ask yourself, I mean, what do I need to do if this story is true? I mean, what if that story, that's, that's a good question for, for all of us, not just people who aren't Christians, but particularly if you're not a Christian here and you've like relegated the supernatural to, to make-believe land, if you thought, you know, God doesn't exist, what if you would allow yourself to believe that what the Bible says here about transcendent Jesus coming from heaven to earth and having authority to, I mean, having authority over everything beyond what your eyes can see and your ears can hear and your mind can imagine that this is true. I mean, what do you do with this? Could it be that this Jesus is everything that he says that he is? Could it be that he has all authority? And would the understanding of who Jesus is make, help you make more sense of your life? Would it help you make more sense of the craziness that surrounds all of our life and really some of the tragedy that happens in our world? Not just the new news headlines that we hear about and, and fret about, but like up close and personal things in your family, things going on with friends of yours, things happening in your very own life. Does this view of Jesus not attract you to faith at all? And of course, if you're tempted to follow Jesus, we would love to talk to you about him at the end of our services every week. We take a time and say, hey, if you would like prayer in any area of your life, come up front and we'll pray for you. And we handpick these people to pray for you, and they would love to pray for you, especially if you are a person that's not yet come to faith in Jesus. Let me give you two things to pray about. Can we as a church pray that God would make us more spiritually minded? 
not that we would just read the Bible correctly, but that we would be in tune with just the things that are happening around us, that we would be open to the transcendent and the supernatural, breaking in from heaven to earth, that we would be made more aware that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, as Paul would say, Paul would say in Ephesians 6. You know, we don't think about that a lot. We don't think about the spiritual warfare happening in our world. Sometimes we just like push it aside and say, you know what, I just I don't have time to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. We push it to the side, but it's happening. And I think the more that you're willing to acknowledge it, that it's happening even in your life and the people that you know, the more that you can agree with God. And when we agree with God, we can then, with a spiritual mindedness, submit ourselves to Jesus' authority and have him, by his authority, cast out those things that are plaguing us. Here's the third thing to pray about. Pray that God would put within us a hope, a delight and an awe of Jesus' authority. Here's what this text is telling us. Jesus has authority over everything. There's no one with more authority than him. When was the last time that you were astonished at anything about Jesus like the people in this text? They knew what the scribes could do. They had seen probably some great things. But this guy comes on the scene. They have no idea who he is, and immediately say, this guy is something. He is amazing. But more than that, that you would be astonished with Jesus for who he is and what he is to you. And here's what I want us to pray, that we would pray as a church family, that we would be more amazed by and trust in the authority of Jesus for ourselves. And as a church, we would pray and we walk with childlike faith, amazed by who Jesus is, trusting in his authority. And because we're amazed and we trust him, that we believe all that we say and read and experience is true. And then we would long to see his kingdom break through from heaven and that his kingdom would manifest even in these supernatural ways in our midst on the earth. This isn't weird stuff. This is what's supposed to happen as we see Jesus ruling and reigning over the lives of his people in the place where he chooses. And fourthly, here's, and I'm going to close with this. So worship team, come on up. What ways do you need the power of God and the loving authority of Jesus to intervene in your life this morning? Let me say that one more time. What ways do you personally need the power of the good and loving authority of Jesus to intervene in your life this morning? You know, a lot of times we come to church and we want to hear a good sermon. We want to sing a few good songs, but we don't intend to be challenged, be encouraged or changed by what we're hearing and experiencing. This is one of those mornings where the spirit of God is wanting to minister to you, especially if you're here and you've got habitual sin, that you sense any spiritual darkness surrounding you, that you've got just stuff going on in your family that's unexplained. You can't put your finger on it, but you know there's something to it, and you know that it's not good. This is one of those mornings, church. So sometimes we come here, and, you know, it's good to just be around people. There's other times that, I mean, God would have you come and be prepared to pray and to be prayed for, to minister, and to be ministered to. And I think this is one of those mornings for us. Because we can't come in this room, like I said before, and assume that there's spiritual activity happening in the first century and not here. That there's supernatural and transcendent going on in the first century, but it's not happening here. We just can't assume that. If you assume that the Bible is true, then what happened then is happening now. And if we are the same kind of people sinful, trusting in Jesus, but yet, you know, not oblivious to the things that are happening in the world and the same oppression and, and stuff that's happening in the first century can happen amongst us here today. So what I want us to do, I want, us, I, I want this to be a real moment for us, a moment of ministry. And I'm going to ask you to do something really challenging. If you know here today that you or someone close to you is, is dabbling in darkness or it, it has something going on in their life for which they feel spiritually oppressed and they can't, they don't know what to do about it. And I'm going to ask you to stand so that those around you can pray for you. And I know immediately what you're thinking is, well, they're going to think I have a demon. 
I, I can't control what people think. And if you're a Christian, you're possessed by Jesus. You're not possessed by the devil. But that doesn't mean you can't be influenced by demonic influences. And, and what happens here, Jesus uses the word to cast him out. And this is not, I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to do anything weird. We're just going to do what the Bible says. We're going to trust in Jesus and his authority to, to cast out that thing which might be influencing you. Is anybody here that would be willing to stand up for yourself or somebody that you know? I'm not going to be embarrassed if you don't. But if you know someone, and if you're here today and you are feeling that supernatural thing that you can't explain. So what I want to happen is for those of you that are around, those who are standing up, stand up with them. And I want you to say a prayer. And I'm going to pray. We're going to do this Korean style. For those of you that have been to Korea, the Koreans all pray out loud every time they pray. They pray loudly. Okay? And what this does, it encourages the person that's hearing you pray. All right? And so what we're going to do is just pray. Pray that the enemy would be bound, that the spirit would be cast out, and that God and his glory would gain, would gain the fame that he deserves. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe it's true. Thank you for those who, who had the courage to stand up. And we do bind the enemy, his works and effects. Lord, we believe your word is true. You said in Luke 4, the spirit is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to re the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God, we believe these words are true. This is why you came, Jesus. You came to set us free. Would you set free those who are standing up, who are, are who've stood up and by their standing are saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust your word. I am experiencing some kind of spiritual oppression, some darkness that I can't even explain. And my hands are too we, they're not strong enough to drive it out, but Jesus, you are. And so, Father, we're saying in Jesus' name that we believe that you are strong enough to save. You're strong enough to deliver. Would you deliver now? Would you deliver those who have stood up before this congregation? Would you deliver them from, from sin and pain and, and all those things that obstruct them from having a, a full and glorious life serving and loving you. God, even those who wanted to stand up but didn't have the courage to do that today, would you come into their life with power? And would you free the soul that's, that's held captive? Would you set us free this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name. And we say loudly, yes and amen. Yes and amen. Yes and amen.